Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sunday, June 18th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The debt ceiling deal is finished, so figuring out how to spend money this fall for the next fiscal year should be a breeze for Congress, right? It's apparently not so simple. Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, is saying, you know, why did we not, why did we come to this agreement? You know, whatever uh, the spending levels are going to be in September, they have to match this agreement. Otherwise, we would not have voted for this. I'm Jared Halpern. NATO's Secretary General signals early successes in Ukraine's counteroffensive and says the Western alliance will continue to spend on mutual defense. Only seven NATO members mm. of the 30-odd, uh, and I say 30-odd because it is changing at the moment, mm-hmm. spend 2% or more of GDP on defense. The war has changed the perception of defense spending in some countries. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Knockdown and bitter. Those are two of the words some recent headlines used to describe the spending fight gearing up in Congress now over appropriations, the bills to fund the government using taxpayer dollars. There are 12 bills, and rather than wait until the end of the fiscal year in September to tackle them all, lawmakers are trying to be more methodical and start earlier. But some more conservative Republicans are demanding less spending, less spending than they say had been agreed to during negotiations over the debt ceiling. We've got these new numbers now that they're going to start writing to, but those are caps. Doesn't mean you can't go below that. In fact, you're seeing rescissions, other things, but also limitations, you know, amendments to limit or defund certain things are also going to be coming forward. House Majority Leader Republican Steve Scalise said yes, using 2022 funding levels is part of the discussion. There might be disagreements over where exactly we want to go, but all of us want to get control over spending in Washington because it's the reason you have record high inflation. It's the reason you're seeing interest rates go through the roof. House Minority Leader Democratic Congressman Hakeem Jeffries was annoyed. At the end of the day, any spending agreement that is arrived at by the end of the year has to be consistent with the resolution of the default crisis. Otherwise, what was it all for? Jeffries asked, why did we tie avoiding a default with a top-line spending agreement? He called this budget process right-wing theater that could result in harmful cuts to a number of Americans. And in the end, he said, it could lead to a government shutdown. Nothing is ever easy in Washington. And something I pointed out to people when I looked at this back a couple of weeks ago when they crafted this deal is that nothing is binding. Fox's senior congressional correspondent, Chad Pergram. Uh, I mean, you you were able statutorily to do what they needed to do with the debt ceiling, but that does not directly affect appropriations. Appropriations, you're firing with live ammo. That's the actual government spending, the portion of government spending that Congress is in charge of. And they have to fund the government 12 bills by the 30th of September or there is a government shutdown. So what's happened here is you had a number of Republicans, uh, conservatives who went to Speaker McCarthy 
and basically said, we're going to lock up the floor. So this is Republican on Republican violence, so to speak here, <laughs> until you come around to our way of thinking. They did not like the fact that McCarthy brokered the deal at all with the president. They did not like the fact that more Democrats voted for the bill, the debt ceiling, even though McCarthy got about two thirds of his conference to vote for it on the floor. And they said, hey, you know, this is part of the, the agreement that we made to make you the speaker back in January. You know, there's no written right. down piece of paper on this. Uh, he thought he might have a 40 to 50 seat majority. He's got a four seat majority. So guess what? These people can, uh, you know, have some sway on Capitol Hill. And so the bill that was on the floor, there were two bills that dealt with the regulation of gas stoves. Now, we've heard a lot from Republicans about gas stoves. So in order to put the bill on the floor, you have to first approve the rule. In other words, if you're going to play you know, football or hockey or something, you first have to vote on and agree upon the rules. This happens almost every day, every bill that comes to the floor in the House of Representatives. So you had just enough Republican defections to defeat the rule on the gas stoves bill. Thus, the gas stoves bill did not come up and they could not work this out for about a week in the House of Representatives because of this protest. Mm -hmm. And so this is where Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, is saying, you know, why did we not why do we come to this agreement? You know, whatever uh, the spending levels are going to be in September, they have to match this agreement. Otherwise, we would not have voted for this. So that's mm -hmm. the dispute right now in Congress. Is this is this a, a, some of the more conservative Republicans moving yes. the goalposts, you know, saying, hey, we're going to allocate funding that is even less than what was agreed to in your debt ceiling talk, Speaker McCarthy, and, and then we'll talk. Right, exactly. Now, first of all, it's going to be very challenging to see how they approve those bills. McCarthy says we're going to do it by the book in the subcommittee first, in the full committee and on the floor. And as I say, there might even be a problem with finding the votes on the Republican side of the aisle to fund some of those programs. You know, again, you know, just because the, the most conservative members want to vote for this doesn't mean you have a majority. And the Democrats certainly are not going to make up the difference there. And so that's why this is kind of dicey. And this is where McCarthy is between a rock and a hard place uh, because, uh, you know, he, he cut this deal. Uh, the Republicans think that he is giving agency to the Democrats in this process. And, and, and therein lies the, the, the problem, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and Speaker McCarthy a couple of times, you know, he could show his frustration because he said uh, at one point, he said, I'm not even sure what they're asking for. And to show you just how strange this was with the, the rule, I talked about the rule, and this sounds a little bit arcane, but it's so important to understanding the essence of Congress, Jessica. So you have uh, three members of the Rules Committee who usually would not be on the Rules Committee uh, because they were somebody, they were people who were skeptical of, of Speaker McCarthy, and usually the Speaker puts people on the committee who are going to do his bidding or her bidding sure. in the case of Speaker Pelosi because you don't want to mess up the floor. So Ralph Norman of South Carolina... Chip Roy, who's a Republican from Texas, and Thomas Massey of Kentucky. And so in the Rules Committee, you had all three vote for the rule. But on the oh. floor, without telling the Speaker of the House or the leadership, you had Roy and you had Norman blow it up. And in fact, I spoke with, with one senior member who said they thought that this was childish behavior. Uh, somebody from the leadership said, I've been trying to have a conversation with those two. And one of them was ducking them, frankly. Uh, so, you know, for about a week here, there were some very unhappy people on Capitol Hill and you had this internecine clash inside the Republican conference. Mm. This reminds me a little bit of high school. <laughs> well, Congress is a lot like high school. Barney Frank, the former congressman from uh, 
Massachusetts said that, yes. Um, Chad, at the end of the day, though, the point is, we, like you said earlier, we need to come up with a plan to fund the government. This is the mm-hmm. process, we, these 12 appropriations bills, that's how it's done. And some Democrats are saying, we look like we're going to have a, a shutdown. It's, I think it might be too early to say that, but is that, do you feel oh, like that's a very real possibility? September ends, <laughs> September 30th. You know, look, yeah, you're right. It's three and a half months. Uh, they're not in now till Tuesday. Uh, they're back for four days next week. Then the House is out for two weeks for Fourth of July. They're back. Then they're out all of August. And then they will work like dogs in September to try to avoid mm-hmm. a shutdown. So, you know, yes, it, it's really September now, frankly. Um, you know, I always thought it'd be a great, you know, you know, punk band or something called Government Shutdown or something. But I, I'll <laughs> tell you, we're, we're, we're there right now. And this is where John Kennedy, the Republican senator from uh, Louisiana, uh, said we're kind of, you know, cruising for a bruising right now. Mm. Chad, tell me, though, a little bit more. You referenced it about the this effort, the GOP's effort to make sure that no one can ban gas stoves. That that did there was some action on that front this week. That's right. Well, they finally worked this out because, again, it wasn't so much that they were voting against the bill as an act of protest. They were voting against the rule, which if you can't get mm-hmm. the rule on the floor, you can't play and you, know, you can't get to the bill. As I said, if you, if you don't approve the rules, you can't play the game. So they they blew up the rules. So, yes, uh, this was basically to you know, overcome a, a federal rule that dealt with the regulation of gas stoves. Uh, Republicans have, have taken this issue and run down the field with it, saying, oh, they're going to come after your gas stoves. It, it changes some of the, uh, the measures and emissions issues with gas stoves. It doesn't affect anybody's gas stoves right now, but going forward, you know, and, and we do this with appliances from time to time, you know, regulate them. But this is an issue that Republicans were pushing. And being very critical of the Biden administration, which is why it was so interesting. It was a Republican proposal that they talked ad nauseum about, and then they couldn't pass their own bill because they couldn't get to the uh, get to the actual piece of legislation on the floor. But they did finally, after they got a little bit of an agreement and the conservatives made their protest, they did pass these two bills about gas stoves. Okay, Chad, there were a lot of hearings this week, mostly it seems like in the House, but um, there was one on organized retail theft. And this hearing happened after Target reported that between this year and last year, shrink could result in a billion dollars in losses. Shrink includes retail theft, but it includes other losses, too. Um, It kind of makes you wonder, though. What co- like when you hear about retail thefts, you think, well, what what on earth could Congress really do? And there is a, apparently a bill now. It would set up like an organized crime retail mm-hmm. center through Homeland Security. Do we do we know if that that's sort of the extent of any effort here? I mean, this sounds well, like Jessica, a very local what, crime issue. Right. Exactly. And, and sometimes, you know, again, this is coming from the Republicans focusing on on crime overall. You, you know, they're talking about you know, street crime is up, violent crime. You know, they'd focused a lot on Washington, D.C. and some of the crime here in Washington, D.C. So this is to some degree an extension of that. But also mm-hmm. what they've seen in kind of the Internet age, ways to track goods that are stolen. Um, mm-hmm. There's ways that you can do this now and kind of figure out if there's a syndicate behind this or groups of people or whatever and track the things online. You know, so this is something that Congress has been getting involved in more and more, almost from the digital side uh, for a few years. And Chad, um, reaction to the indictment of former President Trump as he's running again, we know the Judiciary Committee Chair um, Jim Mm -hmm. Jordan, he sent a letter to A.G. Garland just before the indictment came down asking for more details about the scope of uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith's authority and some other items. But as for any role Congress plays here now, I mean, this is this is a federal court matter at this point, right? 
Well, the Oversight Committee in Congress does have oversight of the Department of Justice and the FBI. Uh, Republicans have said for a while that they think that the FBI is out of control. This comes back to the spending clash here, Jessica, where you've had some Republicans, including Jim Jordan on our air, say, you know, we're going to try to cut their funding because the ultimate power that Congress has is the purse strings. Although I asked Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, about this a few days ago, and he said, oh, no, no, we're not going to do this tit for tat. He said, we don't retaliate. He said, that's something the Democrats would do. That was his quote. So I don't know if Jim Jordan and some of these more conservative Republicans and the speaker are not on the same page. Uh, But, you know, most Republicans up here were... um, Uh, They were standing behind the former president. You had some who were being more aggressive than others. You had some more moderate Republicans like Lisa Murkowski uh, from Alaska, John Thune, uh, the minority whip from South Dakota in the Senate. Both of them put out rather muted, you know, commentary about this, you know, because they, you know, there's a pretty good chance that, you know, Donald Trump might be uh, the Republican nominee next year. And, And there are a lot of people in those states, Alaska and in South Dakota, who still support him and would certainly put somebody like John Thune and probably to a greater degree, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, in a tight spot. And Mitch McConnell wouldn't even comment when asked. I mean, this, you know, he held his usual press conference on Tuesday and said, I'm not going to talk about, you know, the indictments or anything like that. He completely issued this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he and, and former President Trump really do not get along at all. And, you know, former President Trump has lashed out over the years at Mitch McConnell and called for his removal as the minority leader in the Senate. Uh, you know, it is a little bit of a risk. I asked Cynthia Lummis, the Republican senator from Wyoming, about this the other day. And she said, well, she said, until people see a, a turn in the politics, you know, she's seeing, you know, she said Wyoming, her home state, voted at a higher percentage for former President Trump than any place in 2020. Mm. And so, you know, the, she can't put that aside. But she says a lot of people do think that this is politically targeted by the DOJ to come after him. And this is where Republicans have kind of pivoted to say, look, why aren't you also investigating President Biden uh, over classified documents? Uh, What about Burisma? You know, so you get, you know, you get this in stereo right now on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Finally, Chad, the fun stuff. You were broadcasting the congressional baseball game, right? It happens every year. Republicans beat Democrats, I think, for the third year in a row. Third year in a row. 16 to 5. I think a lot of us are wondering how are our members of Congress among each other, between each other on a baseball field as opposed to in the halls of, of Congress? Well, I, I mean, they certainly want to win. Uh, that's <laughs> something that I see, you know, even though there's a lot of talk and I'm going to be frank here. Some of it's a little bit of happy talk. They all come together and everything else. Uh, I, I think maybe in some respects it helps a little bit, maybe lower the temperature, uh, build a little bit of camaraderie. I'm not so sure that that actually results in legislative achievement necessarily uh, because of some of the reasons we just we just talked about. Sure. But, uh, you know, there was a funny moment where uh, Don Davis, who is a freshman uh, from North Carolina, a Democrat, he was hit by a pitch. And he kind of oh. jokingly acted like he there was. In fact, there were several hit batsmen in the game and like he was going to go out to the mound and they kind of hugged it out. It was all just, you know, for song and dance there. But um, they do take this game very seriously. Both teams, they get up and they practice at 530 in the morning. They start back in wow. February when it's dark and the ground is still frozen. And, you know, Jessica, this year's game, they played at Nats Park, 26,000 seats Tickets were sold for this game, which is amazing if you think about this. It's just a couple of blocks from the from the Capitol. They raised one point eight million dollars for charity. But this game was being played on the sixth anniversary of the shooting at the practice 
where Steve right. Scalise and others were wounded. And so that event is tragic and as harrowing as it was in Alexandria, Virginia. In fact, it's just a few blocks from where I live. And that day, that, 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 that was a horrible day. I was at the field within minutes and I had been working out the gym and I had a ball cap and sweatpants on and things like that and reported most of the day wearing that all, all morning long. But that event, as tragic as it was, elevated in a weird way the stature of the game sure. because it brought more attention to it. And so each year they have, you know, better attendance. You know, we broadcast it live on FS1, on Fox Sports 1. My, my friend and longtime colleague, John Walton, who's the voice of the Washington Capitals, uh, used to be the public address announcer uh, for uh, the Cincinnati Reds, and he works for the Washington Capitals. He's the radio voice for the Capitals. He did play-by-play. Mm -hmm. I did the color commentary. And it's, uh, it was a fun night, I'll tell you. I mean, just to see everybody out there. Presidents have come to these games before. You know, we talk about some of the, the history of the game. Gerald Ford was the first, uh, you know, member to ever hit a Grand Slam home run. People forget that he served in the House. He was the minority leader in the House back in the, 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 in the, in the 60s and the 70s. The Grand Slam was in 1957. Um, there have been mm -hmm. a number of members who uh, had played, you know, professional baseball. You had Jim Bunning, the Hall of Fame pitcher. Uh, with the Tigers and the Phillies. Uh, great name here. Vinegar Bend Mizell had been a Republican congressman from North Carolina. He was a two-time All-Star with the Cardinals and the Pirates and was a original huh. New York Mets and then went on to Congress. Um, there was one member who uh, was named Jacob Rupert, who was a congressman from New York. And he left Congress and he wanted to buy a ball club. This was in the early 20th century. He tried to buy the old New York Giants, couldn't get them. So he bought this team that kind of, you know, the first few years they were organized, they were kind of, you know, also rans. They, they, they rarely, you know, finished above 500. Team called the Yankees. And he purchased this player from Boston by the name of Babe Ruth. And mm -hmm. the rest is history. And Congressman sure. Jacob Rupert is in the Hall of Fame building the New York Yankees. So there's a lot of connections between baseball and uh, and Congress. I mean, you, you might remember, of course, uh, President George H.W. Bush. He was a congressman first before he was the CIA director and everything else. He was uh, he played in the game. His son, President George W. Bush, he was never a congressman, but he used to own the Texas Rangers, of course, in the 90s. Wow. Chad, finally, does anybody get superstitious or pull any meaning from who wins or loses? Like they think that means like more success on <laughs> Capitol Hill or something? You know, I, I asked both uh, Kevin McCarthy and I asked uh, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, you know, who, who was going to win. Um, nobody saw that. Uh, there was uh, one member who said, yeah, he, he said, we, we do pretty well on the ball diamond here. Now we need to do, do, do just as well in the elections. So there is a little bit of that. But I, I and I've and having covered this game for a long time, I've never seen any direct parallel. I mean, there was a time, I think this was back in about 2006, and I remember the Republicans had a pretty good team back in those days, and they were in the majority. Uh, the Democrats a couple of years ago, you know, they had a very good team. Cedric Richmond, uh, who was a member from Louisiana, had pitched in college, and, and they the Republicans just could not hit him. He had a wicked curve, and they could not hit him. <laughs> and I was trying to see if there was any connection. You know, the Democrats were in the majority, you know, 2018, 2019, in that period there. But that uh, I, I don't really see any, any connection in, in terms of who's in power in Congress. All right. Well, remains to be seen. Fox News Senior Congressional Correspondent Chad Program, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. 
we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. In the aftermath of the Second World War, with Europe rebuilding and an ascendant Soviet Union dividing the continent with an iron curtain, a new alliance emerged, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Since the fall of the USSR and the end of the rival Warsaw Pact, the alliance has lost some of its luster and certainly has raised some questions about its continued usefulness. That all changed with Russia's invasion of Ukraine more than a year ago. The NATO alliance has spent billions to arm Ukraine, who is outside the alliance shared defense commitments. And Western nations like the U.S. and U.K. are adding defensive resources to the so-called eastern flank, the Balkan members nearest Russia. Add to that Finland joining in the last few months and Sweden in the process of joining to provide additional security from Russia. This past week, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg visited Washington and the White House, telling President Biden that Ukraine's counteroffensive is showing signs of progress and the NATO alliance is stronger than ever. The visit comes about a month before President Biden and other NATO leaders will meet in Lithuania. We will there agree to sustain and step up the support for Ukraine, further strengthen our deterrence and defense, which includes a more stronger commitment to increase defense spending. Each NATO nation is expected to spend at least 2% of GDP on defense. That is a target, however, few in the alliance are meeting. Next month's summit also comes as Stoltenberg, who has been Secretary General since 2014, is expected to depart. His term ends in September. Well, that is his plan. He wants to go home and he said that. But the question is, can they let him leave if there's no one to replace him? Jonathan Savage is the Fox News audio correspondent in London. He has closely followed the war in Ukraine and NATO's expansion and joined me to talk about the state of the alliance and the challenges it's facing. There's a lot of intrigue in the halls of power over this one because the next secretary general has to be someone who will be a strong supporter of Ukraine but not so strong that they provoke Russia too much. They have to be good at talking to leaders from dozens of diverse European countries but also have a really strong connection with whoever's in the White House during their term in office. It's good if they have some experience in defence spending and defence policy as well. So who could that be? The, the obvious candidates already have jobs. Ursula von der Leyen is the president of the European Commission and she ticks all the boxes. People have talked about Mark Rutte. He's the, the prime minister of the Netherlands. But it seems like these people don't want the job because they're quite happy where they are. So could Jens Stoltenberg be persuaded to stay on a little longer? Never say never, but that might still change. The job, you're right, is a tough one and, and it's a very unique skill set that one needs. Is the expectation then that there might be a training period? I mean, because there's not really an election, right? They're, like all of the, the countries kind of get together and just decide amongst themselves, hey, here's who it should be. It's, it's kind of like picking a pope. 
Yes, that's a that's a very good analogy. No, it's it's not like there's an election. NATO is not a democracy in, in that sense of the word. It is a case of who wants the job and who's right for the job. And they do, I think, tend to rotate a little bit around different countries. So it's it's probably not likely to be um, maybe not a Scandinavian again, possibly someone from from Central Europe. Um, the, that's where the the talk is. People in in the sort of the big European powers, Germany, the Netherlands. France and maybe even the UK. We have uh, had Secretary Generals before, George Robertson in particular, former UK Defence Secretary. Uh, and they do tend to come from people who have had very, very high roles in political office. They have been elected democratically before in their own countries, and then they're selected to head up NATO. Well, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister of the UK, seems to be, I don't know if you want to say openly, but, but is clearly campaigning for his Defence Minister, no? Yeah, I think that's probably not unexpected. The UK has been obviously a very key member of NATO, one of the, the few countries which uh, meets the 2% defence spending target. And I think given the UK is also sending such a, a large amount of support to Ukraine, they would like to have a really big say at the top table when it comes to NATO. And it's been a few years since we had a Secretary General from the UK, certainly within living memory. But it would be good, I think, for any country if they have a direct connection to the Secretary General of NATO. You mentioned the UK and spending that 2% towards uh, defense. That is the commitment that NATO countries have made. It is something that the Secretary General spoke about this week at the White House, saying that that should be the bare minimum. Um, it was obviously a big complaint of former President Trump and his administration and one of the, the main sticking points that, that sort of seemed to cause some tension in, in the alliance, how many countries are now meeting that 2% threshold? And has the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, changed the thinking from many of these NATO countries about how much they are investing in their national defense? Far fewer countries, Jared, than you would think are meeting that 2% of GDP spending target. They're meant to do it because the idea is that the cost of defending the alliance should be shared proportionately. Mm -hmm. But only seven NATO members mm -hmm. of the 30-odd, uh, and I say 30-odd because the number is changing at the moment, mm -hmm. spend 2% or more of GDP on defence. The war has changed the perception of defence spending in some countries. And one massive example here is Germany. The invasion of Ukraine led Germany to announce a massive increase in military spending, a major policy shift from a country which has shied away from too many military commitments since the end of the Second World War, philosophically. But now it says it is going to hit 2%. Uh, Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor, also promising an extra $10 billion worth worth of defense spending in 2024. Is there a thought that a new secretary general needs to come from a nation who is meeting that commitment? I think that there probably is a thought in that direction because uh, especially, I mean, it may not be in the thinking, but Donald Trump wants to be president again. And imagine if he is president again, mm -hmm. he will raise this issue once more. And a country such as the UK, which is meeting that 2% target and the Balkan countries probably want a secretary general who is going to chivy the underspenders along to make sure that the cost, the burden is shared proportionately. Let's talk a little bit about the NATO alliance. Um, 
what is the state? Are there disagreements about Ukraine? I mean, obviously, when we hear from President Biden, when we hear from Prime Minister Sunak, when we hear from the Secretary General, uh, you get the sense that, you know, all 31 countries are very aligned. They're on the same page. They are moving in the same direction. Is that the case sort of in the diplomatic corridors? Almost entirely, I would say. Um, I think the first thing to say is that NATO probably seems more relevant than it has done since the end of the Cold War, because it was set up, of course, as a defensive alliance against the old Soviet Union. And with Russia under Vladimir Putin, more nationalistic, more aggressive than it has been for some time, NATO's existence definitely seems very relevant. And that has focused the minds of the member countries as to its purpose. They realise that there is a real value in having this defensive alliance when you have nuclear armed Russia invading neighbouring countries. Russia's invasion was meant to bring Ukraine closer to Moscow and further from NATO, further from the West. But the war's done the opposite. It not hasn't just increased support and enthusiasm for NATO within member countries. It has encouraged Finland to apply to join, mm-hmm. Sweden to apply to join, ending their policies of neutrality. And the big NATO summit next month is going to be dominated by calls to give Ukraine a clear and workable pathway to NATO membership when the war finally ends. There is, of course always one country which stands out among NATO members, and that is Turkey. Turkey is a NATO member. It spends a lot of money. It has, I think, the second largest armed forces in NATO. But not so long ago, it was agreeing to buy missiles from Russia. It has a very strong diplomatic ties with Moscow in NATO terms, and that can be very useful to NATO. Uh, but also, Turkey does tend to be a, a little bit a little bit difficult at times around the table. Let's talk about Turkey, because you mentioned Finland uh, now in the alliance officially, Sweden on that path. The reason that Sweden is not yet a member is they have not been ratified by Turkey. What is the, the dispute here between Turkey and Sweden? Applications to join NATO need unanimous approval from the countries that are already members. But Turkey is refusing to let Sweden join because Turkey says Sweden is soft on terrorists. By terrorists, Turkey is talking about the Kurdish Workers' Party, or PKK. That's a separatist Kurdish movement that Turkish forces have been fighting for a very long time. The PKK is classed as a terrorist organisation, not just by Turkey, but the US, the European Union, Canada, Australia. Uh, But Turkey says that Sweden has supported and protected PKK members and provides uh, assistance to them. But what Sweden says is, no, we help Kurdish refugees, we don't help terrorists. And that's why the talks are ongoing to persuade Sweden, Turkey says, to take a tougher line against Kurdish terrorists. That is not an insignificant issue, though, because one of the agreements and maybe the major reason that nations join NATO in the first place is because of uh, that protection and an attack on one and an attack on all. It has only been invoked one time on 9-11 when the United States was attacked by al-Qaeda. Turkey is in a state of conflict with this group. So what's the NATO obligation when it relates to that conflict between Turkey and this separatist group, who, to your point, the United States and others also label as a terrorist organization? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's very interesting, isn't it? Article 5 of the NATO Treaty mm-hmm. uh, says an attack on one is an attack on all. Um, I think the difference is that the Kurdish separatists are not 
a nation state. They have been described as the largest ethnic group that doesn't have a nation state. And if it was a, a Kurdish nation recognised internationally that was attacking Turkey, yeah, then yes, they would be entitled to call on NATO protection. So because it's seen as a sort of terrorist group, that means that NATO can individually, individual countries can, can assist Turkey as, as they sometimes have done, but they don't actually have to take a, an active NATO-wide role in the Turkish battle against the PKK. As we have this conversation about the changing landscape here of NATO, no nation has ever left the alliance since it started. Have there been in Turkey, outside of Turkey, discussions about whether or not it, that's a partnership that, that ought to remain? You know, with President Erdogan has taken Turkey away from the sort of secular, liberal democracy kind of country that it long has been more towards a sort of autocratic, nationalistic country. There's no doubt that people in NATO have been wondering how far he will take that, especially as he has these ties with Russia. But in the end, President Erdogan is a transactional politician. He will keep Turkey in NATO so long as he sees there being a reason for that, as long as he sees a benefit to Turkey. And given that you know NATO is a very, very strong alliance, that he has Turkish troops have taken part in NATO missions and worked alongside them, and there is a, a military benefit to it, as well as a political benefit to having these connections with the United States, the United Kingdom and the European Union. I think that it's unlikely to see Turkey leave NATO in the near term. Well, Turkey also has a, a significant geographic benefit for the NATO alliance, this link to the Middle East, a air base that uh, is quite accessible to, to a lot of members. And so there, there is certainly a huge benefit to the European and North American NATO members to Turkey's uh, inclusion in this group. Absolutely. I think NATO would fight tooth and nail to keep Turkey within the alliance. As you say, this is the country that straddles Europe and Asia. It's the country which has Black Sea access mm -hmm. through Istanbul. It has Mediterranean access. All this provides real strategic value to, to NATO, and they would hate to see that fall within the uh, uh, political orbit of Moscow, for example. Last question. Do we expect a successor or not to be named in this uh, July uh, uh, summit. In other words, if the Secretary General really abides by his plans to call it quits after a long time is leading this organization, would that be the meeting then that, that the countries would get together and figure out who they want next? Well, earlier you talked about how it's a little bit like electing a pope and, and <laughs> talk about the black black smoke and the, the white smoke coming from the, uh, the chimney. Um, I don't see any smoke signals that this is likely to happen. People aren't really saying that this is going to be the, the focus of this meeting. They've got so much else to talk about in terms of, of Sweden, in terms of Ukraine, in terms of Turkey. I think Stoltenberg's term ends September, um, so yes. he does have a little bit of time left. They do have a bit more time left either to persuade him to stay on or to persuade someone else to step up. We'll uh, continue to watch over that. A very important relationship and one that we will continue to watch, particularly given the events in Ukraine um, and Russia. Uh, Jonathan Savage, keeping track of all of it for us uh, from his perch in London. Appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. That'll do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. This week, we'll keep you updated with the latest news following former President Trump's indictment. We'll also take a look at the Supreme Court as some major decisions are yet to come. 
Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.